0: Human beings are exquisitely attuned to reading the mood of the mob. It's a survival mechanism. In order to fit in, we instinctively adopt the correct opinions and profess those opinions. We signal the appropriate virtues. We respect the appropriate taboos that mark us
1: as part of the in-group and not part of the sacrificial subclass. Charles Eisenstein is the author of The Coronation, a collection of essays that explore the paradigms, dynamics, ideologies, and mythologies that predispose us towards narratives around safety and social control, especially in the age of COVID. This mania for safety, this obsession with
0: risk minimization, and this worship of control actually never succeeds. It always brings the opposite of what it intends. It brings less security, it brings
1: less safety, it brings less health. Eisenstein and I discuss ancient psychopathologies that have led to the current COVID hysteria and how we can forge what Eisenstein calls new communities of sanity. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Jekielek. Charles Eisenstein, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Happy to be here, Jan. Charles, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed reading The Coronation, your new book. I, you took my mind places that, frankly, I didn't know it could actually go. So This is a collection of essays, and the first essay you included is about the Zika virus. You, you said all the ideological machinery was already in place for the transition that began in 2020 to a fully medicalized society. What is it that you're saying here?
0: Yeah, so I wrote the Zika essay, I think I called it Zika and the Mentality of Control in 2016 or 2017. The terror that it inspired and the way that they used Zika to justify, they didn't actually, it turned out that the the disease wasn't scary enough for them to actually implement a lot of policies. But where, where I live, um, we had, uh, my son was gonna go to like a school camp, uh, where every, it was a camp out. Everyone is gonna you know sleep in tents in the woods and be outdoors for two days. And they canceled it because in New England there had been two cases of Zika virus. And that was more important to the school authorities than Uh, children getting to know each other, and being out in nature. So So that mentality where everything is subjugated to the litmus test of, is it safe or not? Could you get sick or not? And you should live your life in order to minimize that risk. And that, on a broader level, we should design public policy to minimize illness or minimize death like that whole, which is actually a misnomer. I mean, you cannot actually save lives. You can only postpone deaths. But that whole mentality was already well-developed by 2017. And, And that's what I was seeing when I wrote that essay. The conditions for COVID hysteria are not new. It didn't all of a sudden start in 2020.
1: The moment you start thinking about things in terms of postponing death, you start thinking about other quality of life criteria a lot easier but if when you say saving life it feels so you know <laughs> totalizing in a way right
0: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah it can be a, a
1: fundamentalism if you
0: hold that as of paramount importance then you can use it to justify anything and that's exactly what we saw that was the justification for the suspension of civil liberties you know i mean this is supposed to be a constitutional republic, you know? We're supposed to have these liberties enshrined in the Bill of Rights. There's no clause in the Bill of Rights that says, except if the authorities declare an emergency, Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech, freedom of religion, et cetera, et cetera. I, I have not seen that in the Constitution. But it, it. we kind of all agreed, if it's to protect our safety, then it's okay to suspend civil liberties. It's okay to have like, dramatic changes in the way that we live. It's okay to keep children indoors and, not, and close off all the playgrounds. It's okay to prohibit handshakes and hugs and dance parties and singing choirs and little league games and everything else like that is defined as non-essential. So basically, it's a social agreement that one thing is more important than everything else. And I'm not saying that safety is not important and I'm happy to prolong my life, but it's for a reason, you know, it's so that I can live. It's not so that I can exist in a bubble in like this half alive hell until I die.
1: So you know, something that comes through in multiple essays in the book is that you see society is kind of inexorably progressing in this kind of direction towards this ever-increasing social control. And so explain that.
0: We are immersed in paradigms and ideologies, and I would even call them mythologies, that predispose us uh, to specifically the narrative that, uh, that human progress, that advancement, means an increasing ability to dominate and control the world outside of ourselves. The idea that we will be better off if only we can control everything. Mm -hmm. When the pandemic hit uh, a country, whether it's China, Australia, like the first thing, if if it was really authoritarian, the first thing they do is they limit uh, transportation. You can't leave your state, you can't leave your city, you can't leave your apartment complex, you can't go more than, You know, two kilometers from your home. Uh, You can't leave your house. Uh, That that idea of um, well-being and security and health coming from controlling the perimeter is a very ancient mindset, actually, that, that you could trace back to the advent of agriculture, domestication, conquering nature domesticating the wild, uh, killing the barbarians, uh, civilizing the heathens, that whole mindset feeds a mythology that says that human destiny lies in the completion of that program of control. Once we extend it down to the genetic level, to the neurochemical level, to the molecular level, then we will have no more suffering because we can control the brain chemistry. We can control every bodily process, so we will have no more disease. If we surveil and monitor everyone all the time, we will have no more crime. Mm -hmm. If we uh, join all material objects into the Internet of Things, we'll be able to um, deploy them most optimally for human well-being. Like This is all part of the same mindset. And it depends on a belief that humans are the only source of order and intelligence and consciousness in the universe, which gives us the the duty and the destiny to impose order onto a world that has none. That's called progress. If you believe, though, as all indigenous cultures believed, and as all mystics in our own civilization believe, that intelligence and consciousness is not in human beings alone, but is in all things, then we no longer need to impose it onto a world that doesn't have it. And our place in creation is very different. It becomes a matter of participating in the unfolding of life and beauty in the cosmos, not on dominating and imposing it. The pathology that expressed itself in the COVID madness, uh, in the hysteria, which is one way to look at it, it's not like some passing phenomenon, but it's pointing at a very deep revolution that we are at the brink of.
1: The authorities will say, wear masks, get vaccinated, and you're a good person. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the propaganda that stems from the deeper ideas that you were just describing.
0: Yeah, the idea of wear a mask and I will be safe. That conforms to the ideology of control.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of
0: course. Like it seems natural, of course. I'm gonna gonna mm-hmm. distance myself from the world and I will be healthy. Like distancing, creating your own bubble, that is a primary way to control the world. So here's another thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when the Natural order seems to fall apart when our bubble, our, our bubble of illusion, because control is always an illusion. When something disrupts that bubble, people panic and they want to do something. The authorities are under pressure to do something. So, what do they do? They do what they know how to do, they do what is familiar to them and familiar to the public, which is to prohibit things to mandate things, to to separate people, to go to war against something. In a way, um, COVID was a relief to the anxious, fearful members of the public, which was most of us, who, you know, we've lived, our generation has lived in, through decades of decline, Uh, Decline of leisure, decline of wealth, decline of the uh, health of the ecosystem, decline in our own health. Chronic disease has skyrocketed in the last two generations. Um, Autoimmunity, allergies, obesity, depression, um, anxiety, addiction. And none of these maladies admit to an enemy that we can fight. There's not a bad guy that we can kill or isolate or protect ourselves from. Because the the maladies, domestic violence would be another one. You know, there's not an external enemy that you can shoot to stop domestic violence. So when COVID came along, it, it suggested, unconsciously, but it suggested that if only we can control this virus, we will be healthy and happy again. It's like the relief you get from watching a horror movie, where darkness and evil are projected and concentrated in the figure of the villain, and the villain is
1: then destroyed. You're saying we decided to project all of this onto COVID, but that doesn't explain to me why the policy was so flawed in so many respects, right? Like why why would you pick, for example, lockdown strategy which is known to be a bad approach to dealing with respiratory viruses in the literature? Like why would why would that be chosen? Is it just because we believed that the, you know, the the Chinese Communist Party knew what it was doing somehow and and we have to replicate that? I mean this 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 stuff is paradoxical to me. Yeah, I mean there's a lot of
0: unconscious, like deep unconscious psychosocial forces at work here. It's totally irrational. But people do irrational things all the time, and then if you don't conform to the irrationality, to the hysteria, then you become the enemy. Any time that you invoke an external enemy to unify you, it always is mirrored with an internal enemy, which is the traitors, the heretics, the nonconformists, the taboo breakers. there always is some kind of purge or some kind of um, uh, you know, authoritarianism, police state environment in these times of existential crisis. And it doesn't even have to be a real crisis. As you probably know, like historically speaking, COVID-19 was a pretty weak pandemic, but that didn't matter. It was enough to spark this pattern of hysteria, um, mob violence, which is very ancient. You know, I mean, you could say the same thing about the witch hunts. It was a troubled and divided society. But, and going around burning witches, that didn't solve anything, except it kind of did, because this is the pattern of unifying violence. When everybody turns on a sacrificial subclass of victims, of scapegoats, then that desire to do something about it, to do something about the crisis, is satisfied. And this is the historical pattern that that, that Rene Girard, the philosopher, described called sacrificial violence. Rene Girard described this as the original social crisis. It starts with um, cycles of vengeance. Say we are all together in a tribe and I'm in one clan and you're in another clan and we're getting along fine and then one day there's an accident. I shoot you with an arrow by mistake and you just, you're not killed but you get revenge and then maybe I get killed and then my brothers get revenge on you and then your brothers get revenge on them and there's an escalating cycle of violence that ends up dividing the entire society and creates an impossible crisis that can tear society apart. Blood feuds, tit-for-tat violence, okay? The solution, historically, according to Gerard, was that everybody would turn on a scapegoat and murder them in an act of unifying violence that uh, discharged all of the bloodlust, all of the desire for vengeance, and and unified the society once again. Therefore, the crisis, which was caused by the division itself, would go away because we're all unified now. So then, human psychology being what it is, if killing the victim solved the problem, then the victim must have been responsible for the problem. So myths and legends grow up around these events. casting them as these arch villains, casting them as, um, you know, possessed by demons, casting them as unclean. And in a sense, they are unclean. They are agents of contagion because if you associate with them, then you're tainted. It's, and we see this dynamic even today. I noticed it in grade school where there was the weird kid in the class. Did you have a weird kid in your class?
1: Always. Yeah. Yeah.
0: In our class he was named Kent
1: mm-hmm.
0: and Kent had cooties. Who decided he had cooties? Who knows? Like it was just kind of one of the class bullies, maybe just said, Hey, Kent has cuties. And as soon as he said that, nobody wanted to associate with Kent. Because if you associated with him, then you'd get cooties too. You'd be the weird kid too. So we had, you know, a couple loudmouths who gleefully accused Kent. Of being weird, and then there were the uh, enthusiastic joiners, who you know joined in with that, with the name calling and the ostracism, and then there was the silent majority. People who they're like, well, gosh, I don't necessarily think Kent is weird, but if everyone says so, I guess they must be right. So, ooh, Kent. And then there were the doubters, who were also silent because even though they maybe even felt sorry for Kent, this was me. I didn't want to risk being friends with him because then I'd get called weird too. I didn't want to speak up for him because then I would, you know, be ostracized as well. So I kept silent. So my silence and the silence of that other group who who just kind of shrug and say, I guess everybody can't be wrong that creates an illusion of of unanimity. So each person who doubts, you look around and you're like, well, nobody else seems to think that Kent is okay. How can I be right? I'm the only one. So we see that today um, in say the medical community where like you might be a physician seeing a lot of vaccine damage, but is this just an anomaly is this really happening? Maybe it was always like this. I don't know, how can I be sure? Well, let me look around. Are my colleagues saying anything? Are the medical journals saying anything? No? No? Okay. I guess I better not speak out. Human beings are, are exquisitely attuned to reading the mood of the mob. It's a survival mechanism. And in order to fit in, we like instinctively adopt the correct opinions and profess those opinions. We we signal the appropriate virtues. We respect the appropriate taboos that mark us as part of the in-group and not part of the sacrificial subclass. That mark of belonging could be a mask, could be a vaccine, a vaccine card, and it doesn't matter if the mask actually works or if the vaccine actually works. It doesn't matter if you're if the kid actually has cooties or not. This is a, an ancient powerful psychological disposition that fascists and totalitarians exploit in order to control society. This mania for safety, this obsession with risk minimization, and this worship of control, actually never succeeds. It always brings the opposite of what it intends. It brings less security. It brings less safety. It brings less health. So if you isolate yourself, like you think that if I could only isolate myself from all germs, then I would never get sick. But the more you isolate yourself from germs, the more vulnerable you you become to whatever germs can get through your bubble, Mm -hmm. because your immune system gets weaker and weaker. Not to mention your body ecology deteriorates because your your microbiome requires constant interchange with the outside world in order to thrive. So this is an example of the, the paradox of control that that the greater the level of control the more need you create for even more control same pattern with like agricultural chemicals you spray roundup and you get roundup resistant weeds and you spray for those and now you've destroyed the mycelia and and the ability of plants to uptake minerals so you add more minerals to the soil and that kills the earthworms and then so you substitute like you know one technology after another after another each one addressing the consequences of previous technology. So this is a universal pattern. The world is not this reductive linear mechanism that we can control by controlling all of the parts. It's, it's, it's nonlinear and, and subject to emergent phenomenon. What would happen if we fully take in the truth of the fundamental dysfunction and illness of society and enter the space of, and we don't know what to do about it,
1: the space of unknowing. If there's one thing that stunned me over the last three odd years, right, is the realization of how important the sense to belong, the idea of belonging is to humans.
0: Part of the crisis of our civilization is a crisis of belonging that comes from our dissociation from community, from place, from nature, because ordinarily we get a sense of identity from our relationships. And today these relationships have shrunk to the nuclear family and to the superficial relationships of maybe the workplace or um, the, the suburban neighborhood where you don't really know your neighbors very deeply. Most of our lives, are, um, we're immersed uh, in a sea of strangers. So we don't really know who we are. We don't have a sense of, like the sense that an indigenous villager or a medieval peasant, or even like someone living in a small town in the 19th century would have of, uh, you know who you are because you are, Connected to the people around you in relationships of giving and receiving hmm. and to the non-human beings around you to the plants to the animals, you know the name of every tree You know the story of every hill and every stream, you know what your neighbor's grandfather was like and Where he fell in love and where he fell through the ice in the pond for the, that winter Like you're 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 surrounded in it by a matrix of stories that that give you the sense of being at home in the world. Today, we don't have that. So we are very vulnerable to substitutes for a real grounded sense of belonging. Those substitutes could include membership in an opinion tribe on the internet, um, in, a, in a political ideology, um, or by subscribing to any story, a fascistic story of the people of us that says, here's who you are. You're one of the good people, not one of those bad people, not one of the, and right and left do the same thing, you know, not, you're not a white supremacist, you're not a bigot, you're not a libtard, you're not, a, like every, everybody is basically performing the same ritual of dividing the world into the good guys and the bad guys. And then the way to a better world is that you conquer and destroy and humiliate the bad guys. Mm. Kind of the same attitude as getting health, achieving health through conquering a virus. Mm. Now I'm not saying that there's no such thing as a virus or that viruses can't make people sick. But when that is the exclusive lens, this good versus evil lens, then we end up fighting an endless war and justifying everything that war justifies, including totalitarian control over society.
1: You know, you're of course reminding me of, you know, this whole narrative that the unvaccinated are the source of disease, are the problem, mm-hmm. are the people who aren't doing their part for society, you know, when, you know, ext- very quickly we understood that that just simply was not, it, it could in no way be accurate. Right. Right. To, to the point where the President of the United States, you know, in a you know, televised address. It said it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. So, yeah. you know, so these became this this the sacrificial group. That was what was starting to happen.
0: Um, we were, you know, we unvaccinated were never, at least in this country, physically removed from society and liquidated in concentration camps. But figuratively speaking, we were in many ways removed from society. If you professed any anti-vaccine like any vaccine skepticism. uh, You'd be deplatformed, you know, you'd be censored, you'd be removed from social media. Uh, You'd be ostracized from family events. I I collected some stories on my substack, you know. Um, One woman listed like 20 groups and organizations that she was prohibited from attending. Everything from her ukulele improv group, to her knitting circle, to the public library, to You know the church choir, you know to the church itself, which was supposed to be a very inclusive church Like it doesn't matter if the sacrificial victim is actually guilty or not all that is required is that guilt is projected onto that person so I my my alarm bells were really ringing and uh, That's why I started speaking out about it uh, breaking my pattern
1: that go went back to fourth grade and Kent. You no, know, I appreciated in your writings how you described your own moral process. So just tell me about that process a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I spoke out right
0: at the beginning when I wrote the um, namesake essay of the book, The Coronation. Um, but, and I got like, you know, pulverized um, on social media, and, and, you know, people made whole podcasts. Uh, about the, my fallacies and you know um, the people that I put at risk and probably killed by fomenting counter narrative ideas about COVID nineteen, and I, I didn't say anything that different from what I said in the Zika essay and and other things that I'd written you know going back to the early two thousands, but they had never been controversial. Nobody was was outraged that I um, mentioned. This is part of a lineage going back to Ivan Illich, actually, that, that um, like the only valid excuse not to go to school is a doctor's excuse. So I noticed that this is, we've actually installed medicine as the highest authority in our society hmm. already. This goes way, way before COVID. Like, if, if you write an excuse for your child and say, um, we were having some really good family time, so we went to school late today, you can get charged with truancy. This happened to me. I was like, I went into the school, this is years ago when we still sent my kids to school. I have 20 some year old kids at this point. And they were like, well, we need an excuse. Um, and, and the only valid excuse would be you know, a medical excuse. But no one was you know, um, writing public denunciations of me and demanding that my publisher you know, cease publishing my work until COVID and all these things got political. Our politics is like so confused right now. Like I no, no longer know if I'm left or right or whatever. I mean, I've always identified as left, but now it seems like the left has become right and the right has become left. Like, I'm like, you know, since when is questioning authority right-wing? Since when is questioning the pharmaceutical industrial complex right-wing? Right since when is questioning you know, the government regulatory agencies right-wing? I thought that was left-wing to question those things. So, two things happened, okay, that silenced me for a while. One was not proud of it, but cowardice. I was like, oh my God, I better be careful here. Or, you know, because for a while it looked like, you know, I might be jailed. I mean, for a while things were going really full tilt toward totalitarianism. Um, But that wasn't, I think, actually, to be fair to myself, Cowardice wasn't the main thing. It was actually a kind of a self-doubt. Because I was like, okay, how do I know for sure that the mainstream narrative is false? I have reason to think so. But these sources that I'm sourcing, the counter-narrative information, have I really checked into them? Have I really scrutinized them? Or is it that I'm predisposed to believe that, so I just kind of take that for granted with very little scrutiny? So I began to question everything, and I didn't want to speak out emphatically until I had clarity and um, coherence within myself. And it's not necessarily bad to help, to, to um, look to other people to help you orient to truth. Suppose that right now I see a glowing orb floating around. With an angelic halo around it. I'm like, the first thing I'm gonna do is, Jan, do you, do you see that? You know, because my own eyes are not fully trustworthy. Mm-hmm. So I, I would especially turn to people I respect, mm-hmm. to elders. In a healthy society, the authorities are people who have earned trust and respect over a lifetime. So I would, of course, turn to them. Well, this very natural, healthy impulse gets co-opted by um, authoritarian powers and, un, you know, corporate powers. Doesn't doesn't have to be authoritarian. It can just be, you know, marketers and for-profit corporations. You know, but it can get co-opted, and instead of looking to my trusted friends and elders, I look to the television. I look to the politicians, so so it's but it's not necessarily a bad thing, and I guess one of the challenges we have in our time is to is to forge new
1: communities of sanity. You're you're going through all this, but then and somehow you 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 decide you're going to take a stand. And you're going yeah. to, You're going to start talking about. Um, you're going to start writing because this is what you do, right? right? This is how you communicate.
0: Yeah. At some uh, point, I
1: realized I was gaslighting myself. Hmm. Yeah, and I wrote like a little piece. This is one of the pieces of writing in your essays that really jumped out at me. I'm going to read it. Um, What makes you crazy is to be an agent of your own gaslighting. It starts with outward conformity. When you say and do things that contradict your truth, you might have good reasons to uphold the pretense, to avoid shaming and ostracism, to be accepted, to keep your job. But unless you can hold a place of truth within you that is inviolate, the show soon becomes real. You forget the boundary between true and false, and the bandits breach the walls. You run amok as you retreat to the inner sanctuary, the seat of the soul. Finally, they usurp that too, and you become a fugitive in your own castle. That is what I mean by insanity. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you become a fugitive in your own castle, dodging all of the negative voices that have gotten in, that tell you that you're crazy, that you're alone, that you're naive, that you're irresponsible, and, and they are overwhelming, like you can't stand up against them. They've taken over the throne, but you're still in the castle, like skulking around, um, searching for, for something to, to, to save you um, from you know banishment. And I, I definitely went through some pretty dark periods where I was going through that. Um, and it was, you know, through maybe key interventions at key moments that affirmed and almost reminded me, like, Charles, like you've forgotten. Come back to sanity. And at some point I just had to like listen to my, my inner revulsion. The masks always bothered me more than the vaccines. Somehow, like the dehumanization, it was just so dystopian. Mm-hmm and gave me the feeling this is wrong. And even if I am wrong, I don't care because this is who I am. And I do not want my children to live in a world where masking has become normalized. And a lot of our authorities were saying that masks should be permanent. Mm -hmm. Fauci said we should never shake hands again. I actually dug up the quote, like he said that in 2020. Uh, This was what I was alarmed about was the normalization, and institutionalization of these temporary COVID measures. And that is what um, pushed me over the edge to say things that I knew were going to get me in trouble. And that's when I published the essay, Mob Morality and the Mm Unvaxxed. I was kind of building up to it, but Mm -hmm. I just like let loose. On that one.
1: Well, so so so, give me the thumbnail. I mean, this is a this this is a explosive essay. Mob morality and the unvaccinated. Um, yeah. Give me the thumbnail.
0: I, I mean, basically, that essay um, says that the unvaccinated are fast becoming the new dehumanized subclass uh, associated with contagion, a threat to us all, the internal enemy that must be controlled or destroyed or removed from society who are not fully deserving of life and liberty uh, because they're putting us all at risk. I mean, the same, that was pretty much what what the Nazis were saying about the Jews. You know, they are unclean. They are um, threatening the species with genetic degradation. They have to be removed for the good of us all. All of the, the, the Holocaust was done with enunciated intentions that were very lofty. Uh, It was done in the name of good and right. And this should be a sobering observation that evil, so much evil has been done in the name of saving the world and in protecting us from bad things. I didn't say that the persecution of the unvaccinated is just like the Holocaust. What I said is that similar social forces are at work today, as we're at work in Nazi fascism, as we're at work in the pogroms um, against the Jews in Eastern Europe, uh, and the witch hunts, and many, many other situations. And, and that was one of the reasons why, after I published the essay, I was uh, widely denounced. My own publisher, uh, North Atlantic Books, who I'd been with for 10 years, um, devoted their, their, their main page of their website for a month to uh, a denunciation of me and, and for being an anti-Semite and a purveyor of disinformation and putting people's lives at risk and calling me to donate all of my royalties to a charity of their choice, which was gonna bring vaccinations to underserved youth in the Bay Area. And, and like programs I was on, um, other teachers on these programs wrote to the program organizers saying, if Charles Eisenstein is going to be on the faculty, I don't want to participate anymore because I cannot be associated with him. And so like, it was this ironic confirmation of the thesis of the essay, uh, the idea of contagion. Like, If you're one of the heretics, if you're one of the witches, no one wants to associate with you because they're going to get cooties. I kind of knew it was going to happen in a way. And I guess for me personally, I I had to confront that terror, which is in part ancestral, you know, like I'm half Jewish. Like I had my grandfather escaped a murderous mob in 1903 in Russia uh, by hiding in a haystack and like they killed everybody else. Like this is, you know, family history here, which made it, I don't know, I'm still kind of mad that they called me an anti-Semite, you know? Um, But, you know, this is just, uh, it's this mob dynamic. See, we have to really look at this pattern Hmm. because who knows what the next invocation toward mob violence is gonna be? Who are we gonna dehumanize next? Uh, And you'll see in a few years, People are going to say, "Oh, yeah, I was never pro-mask. I was never pro-vaccine." Who actually were? One one person wrote a comment in my Substack that, like, they were like an old-time hippie opponent of the Vietnam War, and and like condemned and ostracized by all their friends for for being an anti-war zealot, and now like 50 years later, all of those same friends say that they had been opponents of the Vietnam War too. So, you know, I I really want to to uh, change this deeper pattern. Hmm. For me, that's more important than exposing the corrupt officials and you know, putting Fauci in jail or whatever, you know reforming the pharmaceutical industry, uh, exposing the lies, the lies behind the vaccines. Like, that's important. But I really wanna look at the dynamics, the ideologies and the social habits that made it all possible to begin with.
1: You know, dehumanization, you mentioned this just now. You, I believe you kind of see this as the, the thing that humans do, which is the real foundational problem. And if that can shift, then we can have a profound yeah. change. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like one of the
0: deepest lies of the human condition. Because anytime you dehumanize somebody, you're not in truth. The truth about every human being is that they are a divine soul, a child of God, however you want to articulate it, like a full sacred consciousness looking from different eyes. Hmm. That's the truth. And when we dehumanize, we are not in truth. And that will generate all kinds of horrors. And I even extend that to, like, you know, Bill Gates, Klaus, Klaus Schwab, Anthony Fauci, Joe Biden. This idea that the explanation for the bad behavior of somebody else is that they are deficient in core aspects of humanity, that they are uh, a moral imbecile, that they are just close minded and ignorant, and like these, these dehumanizing epithets that we affix to our opponents they are, there's always something missing from that. What's missing is that if I were in the totality of Bill Gates' circumstances, I might do just as he does. How do I know what it's like to be him? Immersed in an ideology of progress, having been validated through the spreading of certain technologies around the world, uh, believing maybe that the biggest threat to the planet is overpopulation, Uh, which is driving climate change, um, believing that technology has all the answers, believing in the project of engineering the Earth itself as the next unfolding of the glorious march of science. Like, if you're immersed in that, and not to mention whatever, you know, childhood traumas and whatever is in his upbringing, you know, the, the entitlement from a wealthy background, et cetera, et cetera. Like, if you were him, do you know that you would be different, and once you start asking that question, then you have the possibility of changing the circumstances that drive the behavior
1: I think you say in your book that you know you, you have to really try to understand the other at the same time you know you, it doesn't, that doesn't mean you, you shouldn't hold the other accountable if they're, if they're guilty of Doing yeah. bad, and it doesn't mean things. that you capitulate
0: to to their demands or let right. them walk all over you or anything like that.
1: Right. Yeah. I don't have any insight into Bill Gates's inner the inner workings of his mind at all. Um, but there's all sorts of we've all sorts of people in the past have been documented who, aren't, who are different. Like there's people, for example, who are megalomaniacs who just foundationally believe that whatever it is they cook up. Is going to be the right thing for all of humanity. For example, those people have existed. I've seen it. I've I've read scientific studies documenting such people. Say, and same with psychopaths, for example, right? People who just simply lack lack the conscience, and they can, you know, crush your head without worrying about it too much. It would just be another thing, right? So it, it feels like, you know, it you. You kind of have to put those people in a bit of a different category of group, but you don't. You, of course, you also don't know who they are, or, or don't you? And this is this is this is a kind of foundational question, yeah. right? Some of us don't, but we also, to some extent, don't want to believe that these people are out there. I think, yeah. For those no, of there, us that have. I mean, this a, is another data yeah. point
0: that we have to acknowledge. In my other book, *The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible*, I do actually talk a lot about psychopaths and what makes a psychopath, but. I think the important question here is what allows a psychopath to rise to power?
1: Hmm.
0: Um, One way that I understand, so this gets a a bit metaphysical again, um, is that we have a fundamentally psychopathic system because uh, profit is so dissociated from the well-being of human beings in nature. Like you can make enormous profits by doing terrible things, and the system actually encourages you to disregard the human and ecological costs, to externalize those from the balance sheet in the pursuit of profit. So people who are totally decent, honorable people, when they are immersed in that environment, they tend to do, to make choices that harm others and harm the planet, maybe not even being fully aware of it you know it might just be in the language of market share and you know cutting the ch- costs from the supply chain and labor costs and stuff mm. like that you know once you're in this realm of abstractions you can do horrible things for a psychopath every everybody is an abstraction other human beings are an abstraction they're just like these cartoon characters you don't actually understand them as human you don't understand them as having feelings and a subjectivity So a psychopath is actually an extreme distillation of something that is ambient in our systems. Hmm. And in a way that they're they're a reflection um, of the systems. Which isn't to say that they don't exist. But as we change our systems and as we change the psychic foundation underlying our systems of which dehumanization is part, Hmm. then the number of psychopaths and their influence in society is going to diminish. Even if somebody is irredeemable, like practically speaking, like you're, they're, they're, they're not gonna change. Like their megalomania or their, their you know, narcissism is so deeply ingrained that we're not going to you know, sit them in an encounter group or feed them psychedelics and they're gonna change overnight. Even so, understanding the conditions that make them what they are is useful in in the struggle against them. So sometimes a fight is still necessary, even when we're coming from compassion and non-judgment. But very often, a fight no longer is necessary because the curiosity to say, what am I missing? What am I not seeing about the people that I judge? Which is basically, I'll mention, like a fundamental teaching of Christianity. Hmm. Like the fundamental spiritual precept of Christianity is forgiveness and non-judgment. But to actually do that is a pretty profound commitment. And if we do that, generally, we're going to have a totally different kind of society. And the current polarization and division will not end as long as it'll just take one form after another after another until we make that commitment to seeing each other with generous eyes.
1: Uh, you mentioned that there's this incredible kind of redeeming element of this sort of, scent of forgiveness in, in Christianity that's a, a very Powerful virtue and something we can aspire to it doesn't mean that, you, that that that's your particular view of the world, right?
0: Yeah I'm not yeah. telling people that Christianity is the way um, what I'm saying is that Whatever your religious beliefs. This is an important truth for our time mm-hmm. a sacred truth mm-hmm. how you incorporate that
1: into your theology I'm not gonna tell people how to do that. Mm. And for the benefit of our audience, why, do you, why did you pick these Christian virtues uh, to highlight? Well, because when it comes
0: to the pattern of sacrificial violence, Christianity directs, most directly addresses it. Because the Christ story is about a ritual sacrifice, you know, a, a sacrificial victim, but contrary to the age-old pattern in which the victim is imbued with all kinds of evil and their removal from society then is a removal of evil from society. Even like in these narratives about a satanic elite, the idea that evil can be concentrated in a few people and therefore Excised from society, uh, the poison removed, the germ extracted. Okay. This so the Christ story starts out like that. And Pontius Pilate, you know, he's he's got an unruly mob, he's got a divided society, there's a lot of social tension. He knows what to do. Throw them a victim. They'll all unite, you know, crucify the guy, all, they'll all be cheering, you know, and they'll go home happy. That's what was supposed to have happened. And and then what's supposed to happen, you know, is that he gets memorialized as the villain. Jesus gets memorialized as the villain. But the Christ story directly subverts that pattern by making him blameless, by making him innocent, undeniably innocent, in in the Bible's narration of that story. Mm -hmm. And that speaks to actually the innocence of all sacrificial victims. Even if they were guilty of something... That's not the reason they were killed.
1: Hmm.
0: That's not the reason that, like during the Black Death, murderous mobs went around killing the Jews, accusing them of poisoning the wells, satisfying their desire that something has to be done, we've got to do something. the, the Jews were innocent of that crime. The witches were innocent of the crimes that they were burned at the stake for. But it didn't matter. They did, their, their guilt or innocence didn't matter, so so the Christ story speaks to that innocence of anyone who has ever been victimized by the mob, mm-hmm. and probably most of us have, mm-hmm. you know, if not on the playground, then you know in the workplace, or especially if you were unvaccinated, you see these dynamics in action, and people ascribe all kinds of horrible things to you, you know, you're unvaccinated because you are selfish, because you don't care about the common good, Mm -hmm. like like you become a repository of evil, projections of evil. So that's the relevance Hmm. of the Christ story to this pattern, and you can look to other religions as well, like Buddhist teachings of interbeing that, that also say, that whatever you're seeing in the other, that's gonna be in you, too. You know, the splinter you perceive in somebody else mirrors the log in your own eye. Jesus said the same thing, really. So, like, I'm not saying that Christianity exclusively has something to bear on this situation, but I think that it is like the most, it's a very direct and very powerful uh, commentary on mob violence, and it offers a way to transcend it.
1: We see all sorts of people talking about what they think is the actual existential crisis, and it's different things for different people. That's what I find so interesting. But people generally agree <laughs> there's a crisis, that's yeah. a very serious crisis. So, and we've been talking a lot about what you see it as being. How do you see the way out as yeah. we finish? Yeah,
0: the way out is to inhabit a new story. The old story being the story of ascent, the story of domination, the story of control, the story of humans separate from nature, me separate from you. The new story being what the Buddhists call interbeing. uh, That says that our destiny is participation in a larger intelligence that we discover more and more deeply that brings us more and more deeply into service to life and beauty on Earth. Just like, in a way, just like every other species. You know, no species is a subtraction from the ecosystem. They always bring more biodiversity through what they give and what they receive. You know, bacteria fix nitrogen that allow plants to grow. The plants send nutrients into the fungal networks, um, which then you know, aerate the soil, which then, I mean, like the whole thing is a gigantic network of gifts. And we're meant to do that as well. We're meant to make creation even more beautiful and to be agents of creation and to make the world even more alive, which is kind of the opposite of what we've been doing. But we have all of the technology and all of the skills to be gifts to the planet, Mm -hmm. and not not a burden on the planet. But we have to understand that, that that's why we're here, on a collective level and also an individual level. And we have to understand that our well-being is not separate from the well-being of the rest of life. And that the more that we contribute to life, to the oceans, to the soil, um, to each other, then the richer we will be ourselves. And as individuals, like this is what where we get meaning and purpose and ultimately belonging and identity. It's through our participation in a unifying story that tells us what we are part of. The new story is about first healing the damage that has been done and then exploring and developing all of the incredible capacities that we have to bring life and beauty to new domains. And if you find that in your life, if you're doing anything that contributes to that emerging new project of humanity, then you will feel satisfied with your work and you'll wake up every morning happy to be alive. What COVID did, what the pandamania did, I call it, is it showed us what we were choosing. It said, okay, if we continue on the path we have been, here is what society will look like. We got a preview, like the surveillance, the censorship, the lockdowns, the mandates. That is a preview of a future where we continue to subscribe to the story of control, of progress equals control. We were shown that so that we could choose clearly and intentionally, consciously. We have a very clear choice right now. The important thing to remember, or one important thing, is that, and this is mysterious, the the modern mind has trouble understanding it, but that our personal choices have cosmic significance.
1: Well, Charles Eisenstein, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, yeah, Jan, I really appreciate it. And
0: uh, yeah, thank you for, for hosting me.
1: Thank you all for joining Charles Eisenstein and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. His book again is The Coronation. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck.